John, and we will uh, conclude um, our study in First John this morning, learning uh, what it is that the Apostle John wanted this church that he wrote to to know, uh, and also through that learning what it is that God today wants us as a church to know and to be remembered, uh, and for us to remember. Um, Real quick, while you're you're turning there, uh, and then I'll I'll, I'll, I'll read the, the the text. We'll read the text together and pray. Um, you guys, uh, I read this morning. I shared the the, the letter with a couple of um, our leaders here. But uh, Wayne Grudem, I don't know if you guys are familiar with who Wayne Grudem is. He is uh, a theological heavyweight of our time, if you will. Very uh, prominent in the ESV, uh, the editing of the ESV Bible and the ESV Study Bible. Uh, has tremendous uh, writings on, in fact, his, his systematic study book, excuse me, his systematic theology book is like the, the benchmark uh, for systematic theology. Um, and uh, he announced this week that he has Parkinson's. Um, and so there's a letter on desiringgod.org that uh, him and John Piper are very close personal friends. And so uh, uh, Wayne Grudem gave John Piper the permission to share a letter that Wayne Grudem sent out to his friends. And uh, it's actually, I, I really would ask, especially in light of our message this morning, that everybody go and read that letter uh, this week because it's very encouraging. In fact, what we'll do is we'll post it on Twitter and Facebook this, this week so you have the link. But um, in light of uh, life and the frailty of life, um, just the hope that uh, you know, Wayne Grudem has, you can, you can, you can feel it uh, as you read his letter. Um, and that's what our message uh, really is today, in fact, um, is that the Apostle John wrote because he wanted this church to know uh, that they have eternal life. It's a certainty. And so let's read First uh, John chapter 5, verses 13 through 21 together. And it says, uh, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of Him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death, and I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Let's pray. God, this morning as we look to Your Word, in light of the season, in light of the times in which we live, in light of the terror, God, that we face daily and the idols that we face daily and the temptations that we face daily, Lord, I pray, God, that your spirit would cause this morning's message and the text of, of your holy scriptures, God, to penetrate the hardness of our hearts. I pray, God, that we would leave here energized, knowing that for those who believe, 
in God's Son, Jesus Christ, they have eternal life. I pray, God, that we would believe that to such a depth that our lives are forever changed. That the way we live our life reflects the truth that we have eternal life. I pray this in your Son's great name. Amen. One of the, uh, one of the most um, uh, distinct memories I have of, of the time that Kate and I lived up in Susanville uh, is a conversation that I had one day at work. Uh, there was, I think, four or five of us sitting around uh, having lunch um, in the office. And um, somehow, I don't remember how, but somehow the, the topic came around to, to God and Christianity. And, and one of the guys that was in the room with me uh, was somebody who went to him and his family, his wife and his two kids, uh, actually, I think they had three kids, but they went to the same church that Katie and I were with, or uh, were uh, at, went to. And uh, so we were talking about Christianity and, you know, doing right and what is godly. And, and, and then, of course, the, the conversation turned to eternal life. And he made a comment that I'll never forget. Um, and he said, you know, I, I, I don't know about anybody else in here, but uh, I, there's just no way that I would ever really know if I have eternal life. You know, so, so what he was saying is that he just didn't know that there was any way for him to know that he was saved and, and that that salvation was secure. And he wondered about it, and it bothered him. And I remember in response to him, I remember citing 1 John 5 to him, parts of it, or not citing it, but referencing it, um, that there is a way to know that you have eternal life. That there is a security that the Bible teaches that we have in Christ that is a sure foundation. It is a solid rock. We, we, we sang it a little bit this morning that there, there is nothing that can tempt us, that there is nothing that can take us from the hand of God. God says himself in scriptures that nobody will take, me, take them out of my hand. And so... Depending on your, your background, this might be new to you. Uh, depending on your theological upbringing and the, and the way that you were taught, it might be, it might be new to you to hear that, that, that once you have been saved, that, that your salvation is secure. Not in your ability to daily choose to follow God. Not in your ability to daily say, I love God more than fill in the blank but in God's sure hand to keep you as his own. In this text, John kind of compares and contrasts a little bit where he says that that the children of God are in God's power. But everyone who does not believe is is in the power of the world. They lie. They, they, They make their bed, right? In the power of the world. And some of us live our lives as if we were trusting, as if we laid our heads down and we made our beds in the power of the world. The way we spend our lives fretting over the things that come and go in life. Over the way we spend our energy and our emotion on things that are purely temporal. Because in us there is this, there is this wondering uh, there's this lie that we're believing, I, I should say, of, of, am I okay? Am I secure? Am I protected? It, it, does God really have my best? As if God's power is as flimsy and wishy-washy as the power of the world. 
So let's briefly take a moment and, and think back on, on, on a one last time of, of why John wrote this letter. If we were to sum it up, it would be that these Christians are pretty much being accused of not being Christian. Right? They're, they're being accused of believing something that is contrary to salvation. The teaching was Gnosticism. The teaching was that, that you don't need the forgiveness of sins to be accepted by God, but you simply need to look down deep inside of you and find that little yin and yang, if you will, right? There's a little bit of good and all evil and a little bit of evil and all good. Like That's kind of the, the philosophy of Gnosticism is that the good is down in there somewhere. And so what we need to do is, is take that little bit of good and, and then we need to make that little bit of good a lot of good. And once we have a lot of good, then we're a good person. And so that was, that was the teaching that tore this church apart. That was the accusations that they... Listen, <coughs> excuse me, they were hearing the same things that Christians hear today. You're narrow-minded, right? You're intolerant, right? You're relying on something that is outdated. We're progressing as a society that might have been good for, you know, Neanderthals, but now for us sophisticated people, it, that, that no longer applies. So they hear the same things that Christianity hears today. And the ESV Gospel Transformation Bible, in its notes on this, on this portion of Scripture, it says this. It says that John brings his letter to a close, clearly announcing his purpose, namely that his genuinely believing readers might have full assurance of the eternal life that they have in Jesus Christ. This grandfatherly figure, if you will, ends his, his, his encouragement to these younger believers of saying, listen, because of Christ, you're secure. Your eternity does not sit in your ability to look inside of you and find something good. But your eternity rests in the hands of God, who you are in, because Christ is in you. That's what he says. But you see, most of us live as though we don't know or don't believe this truth. In that life, there's three markers. Maybe this defines you or describes you. Let me say that. Maybe this describes you right now. Is living without knowing this truth causes fear. Fear of God. Not knowing what pleases God. You're, you're, you're afraid to make a decision because you're scared to death of making the wrong decision. What if I do something that isn't pleasing to God? Then what? What if I, what if I do something that, that, that isn't according to God's ways or God's will? And then where does that leave me? Because really what we're, what we're thinking in the back of our minds is, is what am I going to miss out on? <laughs> right? Like what good things in my life am I going to miss out on? What comforts will, will I forsake because I make the wrong decision? Another thing that it causes is not only fear, but it causes uncertainty. Am I saved? 
Have you ever woken up wondering or gone to bed wondering if you're really saved because of the way that you have lived your life? If you sit down at the end of the night, you reflect on the day, or you wake up in the morning reflecting on yesterday or this whole last week or last month, and you just don't know? You're just completely uncertain as to whether or not you're secure? not knowing what it is that really must be done to get in. And fear and uncertainty lead to paralysis. You're just simply unable to do anything. You, you, <coughs> excuse me. You wrestle with a decision so much that you just don't make a decision. Or by the time you do, it's too late. There are so many Christians who live feeling paralyzed because they don't know the truth that they have eternal life. They are uncertain about what to do with their lives because they're afraid that they might make the wrong decision. But John wants his... read now, And I love how they phrase this in the Gospel Transformation Bible, but he says that he wants his genuinely believing readers... And we're going we're gonna to get to that genuine here in a moment. But he wants his genuinely believing readers to have full assurance. Not partial. Not estimated. But full assurance that they have eternal life in Jesus Christ. So as we, as we get into to, to the text of the message this morning, I'm going to ask you to do something. I want you to keep everything we're going to talk about this morning in light of the new year. Resolutions, new beginnings, everything that comes with a new year. The new year brings about, if you will, a collective sigh of relief. I get a chance to do better. Right? I get a chance to do all of those things this year that I wanted to do last year, but I just didn't have the self-discipline to do. (laughs) You know... The, the, the sure way to uh, keep a, at least one New Year's resolution is to have your rat last resolution to be that you will break your previous resolutions. <laughs> right? And then at least you can feel good about yourself at the end of the year because you kept one resolution. But as we think about and as we talk about and as, as the Holy Spirit illuminates the truth to us that as, genuinely, uh, as genuine believers in Jesus Christ, we have eternal life. R.C. Sproul says this, Christ told his disciples not to be anxious about tomorrow, but he never said not to consider tomorrow. Intelligent problem solving demands careful consideration of the future effects of present solutions. Let me read it again. Christ told his disciples not to be anxious about tomorrow, but he never said not to consider tomorrow. Intelligent problem-solving demands careful consideration of the future effects of present solutions. How many people go into the year saying, or you went into this last year saying, I want to pray more. I want to read my Bible more. I want to give more. Right? I want to be a better dad. I want to be a better husband. I want to be better, uh, maybe some of you women say this, I want to be a better wife or a better mother. 
Maybe I want to be a better kid. I, maybe, maybe some of you have lost connection with your parents. Like, this is going to be the year where, where I'm, I'm going to make an effort to reconnect. So then my question to you is, what's your plan? How are you going to do that? How are you going to actually spend more time praying this year? How are you going to spend more time memorizing Scripture this year? How are you going to spend less time in front of the television this year? I hear it all the time. Guys come and say, I want to leave my family. I just don't know how. And so my first question is, what's your plan? A plan does not ensure that you will lead your family well, by no means. But it, at least it's a diagnostic of why aren't you leading. It, it solves the problem of, I don't know how to lead. Right? You want to lead your family? To, okay, how are you going to lead your family in devotions? What's your plan? How often are you going to do it? What time of the day are you going to do it? What are you going to take them through? How long are you going to do it for? You see, we don't stumble upon deeper commitment to an understanding of who God is, what he has done, who that makes us, and how we're to live. It doesn't happen naturally. Because although we lie in the power of God, we live in the present day in the power of the world. And we can have all kinds of, what's that saying? The, 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 path, the road to hell is paved with what? Good intentions? So what's our plan? And I want us to, to, to think about this as we talk about this morning, how the text, what the text tells us about a, a, a living um, as though we believe we have eternal life. So let me ask you this question. How would your life be different if you lived every moment believing that you had eternal life? How would your life tangibly be different? How would your heart be at rest and your mind be at ease if you believed you had eternal life? How would your time, your money, and your skills be used differently if you really believed that you had eternal life? Because this text tells us three things that believing or knowing that you have eternal life produces. Three things. Number one, and a, a, a knowing that you have eternal, eternal life produces confident praying. Confident praying. Look at verses 14 and 15 with me. He says, And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. You see, hearing equals receiving. We have confidence that he hears us. There is never a plea from one of God's kids that he does not hear. And because we have confidence in him hearing, we can have that same confidence in knowing that we receive what we ask of him when we ask according to his will. Now, there's a couple of, of things that we need to flesh out in this. And that one of them is that it's according to his will. Because here's the thing we wrestle with. My prayers aren't getting answered. I've been praying, and I've been praying, and I've been praying. 
My prayers haven't been getting answered. I want a new job. I want a new job. I want a new job. And here's why, listen, here's why you can't look at the Bible as a reference book. Because if that's the case and you really want a new job, then you just go find that verse that says, the fervent prayers of a righteous man availeth much. And then it says, well, I just got to keep praying. I just got to be more righteous. And then I'll get my new job. What if the job you have is God's divine will for you? And so the issue isn't that you're not fervently praying in righteousness. It's that you're praying not according to God's will. So in order to pray confidently, we have to what? We have to know God's will. And God's will is based in eternity. And I'm not talking eternity as in like way down the road. I'm talking about the realization, the reality of eternal life. The other thing it says is that it says it promised, listen, it says that he will answer it. We know that we have the, re- listen, do you see the, the it's possessive. It's we have the requests. Now here's what we don't know is when we will actually see the tangible fruit of those requests. We don't know. In fact, to take this a little bit deeper and a little bit more scary, if you read Hebrews 13, or Hebrews 11, excuse me, which is considered the Faith Hall of Fame, it lists all these Old Testament patriarchs, right? All these patriarchs, are the, all of these men and women that are our, our great, our forefathers in the faith. Like, like, we are here, we believe, because they passed down a tradition of believing, And it says they were promised, but they never saw the the realization of that promise. But yet they still believed. And it was their belief that was counted to them as faith. So I'm not here saying that we will tangibly always immediately see the... And let me take that back. I'm not here telling you that Scripture teaches that you will immediately see the tangible fruit and effects of your prayer. What I'm telling you is that you will see it. We can have confidence. Therefore, we should pray confidently. Not, not, not with this, well, you know, I don't know what I should be asking. I don't know how to pray. For... Listen, God's will is our sanctification. You don't know how to pray for me? Pray for my sanctification. That'll take up all day, every day. You don't know how to pray for your neighbor that's not saved? Pray that, that their hard heart would be softened and that God would overcome their, irresist, their, their resistance, that they would see God as irresistible. That'll take up all day, every day. Pray in your own heart that God's kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. That will take up all day, every day. Pray His will. And so we have to ask ourselves, do we really know what His will is? Could it be that our lack of confidence in prayer, which, which directly relates to our lack of time in prayer, is because we don't know His will? So then let me challenge you to spend 2016 getting to know Him and His will. 
Because you see, God's will is not separate from God's heart. God's will is not separate from who he is. So you find his will by getting to know him. What is his heart? Well, we just celebrated part of it. His heart is to pursue those who are not worth pursuing. His heart is to bring hope to those who don't deserve hope. His heart is to forgive those who do not deserve your forgiveness. See, true forgiving is not forgiving those that it's easy for you to forgive or those who deserve your forgiveness. True forgiveness is forgiving those who do not deserve your forgiveness. Charles Spurgeon says, praying without fervency, I love this, praying without fervency is like hunting with a dead dog. It gets you nothing. John Bunyan, he wrote that you can do more than pray after you have prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. You get that? Once you have prayed, once you've spent time learning God's will, then you can go live according to God's will. But until you have prayed, there is nothing more for you to do. You cannot move on from prayer until you have prayed. But listen, knowing that we have eternal life causes confident praying. And I confess that this is not a strength of mine. And this is part of the plan for next year that I've submitted to some of the other leaders in this church to keep me accountable in because I, I'm not, I'm not, I don't spend a lot of time praying. I don't spend the amount of time praying that I should. And that's a weakness. And so part of that is because I, there's parts of the, the, the truth that I don't, have eternal, I don't believe that I have eternal life. The second thing he tells us that it produces or that it causes is holy living. Excuse me. Verses 18 and 19, he says, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Believing. (coughs) Excuse me. Listen, church, believing that you have eternal life. What is eternal life? It's eternity in the presence of the living and holy God. What is death? It is eternity separate from the presence of God and His goodness. If I believed that I had eternal life, if I believed that I had a seat at the table with God Almighty for every meal that there is from now until as far as I can't even begin to think, it would cause me to live holy. Now, when I say that, let me again define for you what the word holy means. It doesn't mean don't cuss, smoke, chew, or goes with those who do. It means living a life that is set apart. In fact, what it means, it means for the glory of God and for the good of those people, it means that you do go with those people, but you don't partake in the things they partake in. It means that, 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 that for the glory of God, that God's manifest presence in us would be made known throughout the entire world that we do go with those people and we are friends of sinners and that we care for them when nobody else cares for them and that we forgive them when nobody else forgives them so that 
they might join us at God's eternal table. You see, holy does not mean that we do good things so that we earn our holiness badge. Right? But it is that we have been made holy by God. Not by our doing, but by God. God has set us apart so that we would live for Him. Lives that are set apart for Him. Lives that are set apart that only worship Him. Lives that are about bringing God's glory and making God's glory known in the world, not our own. You see, people who have been born again pray according to God's will. They live according to God's will. They spend their money according to God's will and not their own. David Platt said that because self is no longer our God, safety is no longer our concern. You see, we should be holy. You, know what, you want to know what part of holy living means? It equals taking risks. We should be the riskiest, most courageous people on planet Earth. Why is that? Let me read Job 14.5 for you. Since his days are determined, so Job is talking about all of men, since man's days are determined and the number of his months is with you and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. You know what that says? Whether we like it or not, you're going to die when you're going to die based upon God's sovereignty in your life, not based upon a risk you do or don't take. You realize that? Now, of course, this doesn't breed stupidity and recklessness in us. But this should breed like this should breed a gospel abandon in us. Not that we abandon the gospel, but that we've abandoned everything for the sake of the gospel. We should live holy. Our plans, the missional communities, you guys should have all just gotten done making your, your plans for 2016. It should be a holy plan. A plan that is set apart for God and it looks different from when car clubs come together and decide what they're going to do for the year or gun clubs or hunting clubs or sewing clubs come together and they decide what they're going to do. Our plan should be holy. The third thing that it produces that John writes is it produces genuine understanding. Look at verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. You see, these people had in one shoulder, on one shoulder, if you will, the little devil, right, that pops up and says, no, you don't have to believe in Jesus. You don't have to learn more about Him. You don't have to follow him. His ways are outdated, right? They killed him. Nobody kills the Savior. Just keep looking inside. Just keep doing good. And when you do do good, make sure everybody knows about it. Like, I, we used to, <laughs> we used to, we used to uh, have a guy in, in uh, a church that we belonged to that would go around uh, and, and almost every time we saw him almost tell us um, how much everybody tells him how humble he is. Like, that was his thing. Like, he was at school at Cal State, right? And so he would say, yeah, I was in my class this week, and they just all kept telling me just how humble I am. I'm like, yeah. No, you're not. (laughs) Right? It's like, 
But, (laughs) excuse me, believing that you have eternal life produces genuine understanding. so, So what this means, listen, what this means, for me to tell you that it produces genuine understanding means that the opposite has to be true, right? Which is, there was understanding of Jesus that is not genuine. There was an understanding of God that is not genuine. There is a, a yes, I am a Christian that is not genuine. And, and, and what, what is a marker of that? A marker of that is, well, why are you claiming to be a Christian? Because you're going to get something out of it? Because it brings about some good? Because you think that other people will esteem you higher because you claim to be a Christian? Or is it the realization that without God, you are helpless? Amazing grace starts with understanding that it is undeserved. It is, we are not entitled to the forgiveness of our sins. Mike Breen, who writes a lot on the, on the current missional movement and has some, some good books, he's a pretty, really intelligent guy, but he says this, he says, we are addicted to the work of the kingdom with little to no idea on how to be with the king. You see, being addicted to kingdom work without having an idea of how to be with the king is not genuine understanding of who Jesus is. Because what the, what, what, what the manger tells us, what, what Christmas tells us, is that God wanted people to be with Him. God wants people to be known by Him. He wants to be known. And so if all we are is about the work, and, and we don't spend time, and we don't know the one whom we're working for, then our understanding of Jesus is not genuine. You see, before, the, before we can go out and be effective for him in this world, we have had to sit at his feet and be transformed. We have, under, have to understand that, that the good things that we will do, because God promises that we will do good things, we have to understand that that's not because of our goodness and our hard work. And that only comes from time sitting with the king. And so again, in 2016... If this describes you, then, then come up with a plan of how you're going get to get to be comfortable sitting with the king. That's kind of an uncomfortable thing, right? Think about it. Being in the presence. Some, some, some people get, my kids, for some, we're, we're trying hard to, to change this, but when we pull up next to a police officer, they get all freaked out and scared and nervous. You don't... <laughs> There's no reason to be nervous. And the same is true when, we, when we're with people who we feel are out of our league. And if anybody's out of our league, it's King Jesus. But he bids us come. There should be an affection and a comfort that we have with him. We don't, we're not nervous. We're not afraid that he's going to pull out the sword and lop our heads off because of insubordination. Although we've been insubordinate, 
Because we know that His mercy and His grace so that we have been forgiven and we've been accepted. Paul Tripp says that grace will confront you again and again with your foolishness as it connects you eternally to the one who is wisdom. You see, we as Christians have been given the greatest understanding that could ever be given. And so often we think it as nothing more than it's the ABCs. We know it. We've got it. It's nothing special. But God came that we would know Him. Go back to verse 13 with me as we wrap up. Verse 13, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. If you believe in the name of the Son of God, then rest assured that you have eternal life. Don't fight it. I realize that sometimes it's a struggle to believe it, but in faith, believe it. And then pray confidently, live holy, and understand genuinely. So my encouragement to to each of you is that this year as you make your New Year's resolutions and your plans for 2016, that they be based solely on the security of eternal life for those who believe. John Piper said that it is not freedom for a fish to sun itself on the beach. It is death. The question of freedom is what were you made for? We were made for God's glory. We can do many other things, such as sun on the beach with the fish, but that is death. It is not freedom. Let's pray. Stand with me. We'll pray. Father, I thank you that in your, um, your fatherly care, in your divine and sovereign oversight over our small church, that it was your will, God, that we go through the book of 1 John. God, that is nothing that I lay claim to, God, but that was your care for us. And so as we wrap it up this morning, I pray, Lord, that you will uh, eternally, God, speak to us the truths of 1 John. That as a church, as well as the members of the church who make up the church, God, that we would be encouraged with what we have learned. And that your spirit will bring to mind the things that you wanted your people to know. And this morning, God, that is that we have eternal life. And so I pray right now, God, for our church. (coughs) I pray for our church as we enter 2016. I pray, God, for each family unit that makes up our church, each individual, and I pray for each missional community. I pray, God, that you would help us to be serious about living, believing that we have eternal life. I pray, God, that the plans that we make for next year as individuals, as families, and as missional communities, God, that they would be based on that truth, God, and that those plans, God, would cause us to pray boldly, live holy, and understand genuinely, God. For those, God, who don't know how to make plans, I pray, God, that they would ask for help, that they would be humble, 
And I pray, God, that you would help them. I pray, God, that there's probably many people in here that have never even made an annual plan or any plans for the next year, God, or anything that they've ever stuck to. I pray, God, that you would help them to make that for the first time this year, God, and that your spirit would give them the strength and the discipline to persevere and to keep that plan for your glory and the good of others. I pray, God, that for those of us that walked in here thinking that 2016 was the year, was the year for, for me, for, for my family, for my finances, God, that we would repent from that. And that as we walk from here this morning, God, that our goal for 2016 would be Jesus. Jesus.